You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that got disqualified from a jack-o'-lantern carving contest for reasons that I think would be fairly obvious. We only carve dongs. Just big pumpkin dongs. I'm Spooky Megan. I'm Jack Meehoff. That's not a Halloween thing. That's just a, a sex thing. Nah, that's why we got in trouble with the Jack of Lantern. That's a reach. Even a past reference to your Halloween OC from last year. I squeezed that squash. Ew. Do you remember your beloved Halloween character from yesteryear? Nope. There's just nothing behind those eyes. Count Jackula. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Hey. He wanted to make you come. <laughs> he succeeded many times. I'm RJ. So, you know well, you know what's even spookier? Postpartum depression. Probably. Here's the thing about the that's, yellow that's wallpaper. A, we did that already last year. So, there's something spookier than that is that we have Count a... Jackula, the ejaculation vampire. Even spookier. We have a new store. A wolfman? We have a store. It's Antonio it's, Banderas. Shush. No, the other one. Well, you just let me shill for the love of God. It's at ohnolitclass.threadless.com, and it includes such spooky Halloween designs as a shirt telling you to not kink shame Dracula, and another one with a whole bunch of scary literary ghosts, like the Headless Horseman and Hamlet's Dad. So pick them up just in time. For Halloween. There's also a hashtag pray for RJ. Can't spell read without rad 90s design. And even more stuff than that and more to come. And you can get them on almost anything. Like not even just things you can put on your body. But like stuff in your house. And stuff that goes with you. And things you drink out of and carry stuff in. And yeah. Go buy our stuff please. The next entry in this year's beautiful Halloween celebration is The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a spine-tingling Sherlock Holmes novel chosen by the creepy and or crawly members of our Patreon. You can become a member today and get access to bonus episodes, videos, and all kinds of spooky swag. For two weeks, I thought the name of this book was Hounds of Baskerville. <laughs> I wasn't very successful when I was trying to Google this up. I don't look the guy up. I don't look up old Arthur and I go through his list of works until I figured that out. You could have just asked me. But he kept saying Hounds of Bastardville. <laughs> it's just this dog who comes from a town where everybody's just a bastard. All right. So, our... and so I thought actually we weren't even talking about dogs at all. Because so now I thought that was the title. I thought it was just about just really dicky kind of guys. Like, that guy's like, he ain't nothing but a hound dog. Sort of. He ain't nothing but a hound dog from Bastardville. Yeah. That's That's how the, the classic Elvis song goes. He ain't nothing but a hound dog. No, no yeah. Uh, Elvis was not Louis Armstrong, but <laughs> good, good try. But what if? What if Elvis but Armstrong? What if God was one of us? Um, no, Show Crow. It's, no. No. Nope. <laughs> Let's let's please stop this train before it Shania. gets any worse. Uh, it's time to get elementary. Just so. a slob like one of us, just a stranger among us, on a bus, on a bus trying to make his way home. It's pretty spooky. Are you done? So did you ever? Well, I guess you didn't read. I've never met God on a bus or otherwise. I really like to meet Morgan any Freeman. form of public transportation. I'd like to meet Morgan Freeman and or Alanis Morissette. So I'm going to assume you didn't read this because you were confused <laughs> on the title. But did you ever read any Sherlock Holmes in school? Doubtful. Maybe on my own. You know, like those picture books. Okay. I don't like Sherlock Holmes. 
He said that really. Like, I don't. I don't care for this Sherlock Holmes person. Yeah, he's not my kind of guy. What is your kind of guy? Well, how, how much time we got? <laughs> so I read a few really short ones in like eighth grade, and I'm almost positive we read an excerpt or like an abridged version of this, but we definitely didn't read the whole thing. But like, I fell head over fucking heels in love with Sherlock Holmes stories. And trying to solve the mystery before the story ended and was like absolutely, completely certain in this age of my teenhood that was almost entirely untainted by the internet that Sherlock Holmes and John Watson were fucking. At least until Watson married Mary Morstan. Or maybe they had an open relationship, who knows. Anyway, I read the book in its entirety when I was 15, and that was the last time I read it until now. And that was when I had bought the fancy Barnes & Noble Complete Series collection. Ask me why I know that I was exactly 15. How did you know you were exactly one year short of a driver's license? It's because I was 15 when Kiss Kiss Bang Bang came out, which is an underrated neo-noir black comedy uh, where post-rehab, pre-Iron Man comeback, Robert Downey Jr. plays a goofy wannabe private eye, which is a great movie, by the way. The plot makes no sense, but it's very funny and good. And Val Kilmer, before he got fat and sad, plays a super badass gay private eye. It's very good. Anyway, 15-year-old me was super into this new RDJ fellow, and that was who I imagined in my head as Sherlock Holmes, so it felt terrifyingly prophetic when he was actually cast as Sherlock Holmes four years later. But I digress. So the thing about Sherlock Holmes is that there's so much to talk about, not even mentioning the stories themselves, but just the sheer lore and fandom surrounding them. That's more than a hundred years of fandom, man. So we'll do a proper Sherlock Holmes retrospective uh, special at some point, but for now we'll limit ourselves to the one with the evil hellhound. This is the third of four full-length Sherlock Holmes novels and is especially notable because it came out after old Sherlock's death. This was nearly a full decade after the final problem. I'm sorry, I know I just said I was going to stay focused, but real quick, because I absolutely hate the final problem, because you can tell how incredibly done with Sherlock Holmes Doyle was at this point. It's super boring, almost nothing actually happens, Holmes is all, hey, there's this evil super criminal named Moriarty, who I've never mentioned before now, but is totally real, and has been here the whole time, and we have to stop him, and by stop him, I mean wander around the countryside in disguises for a while. Mr. Holmes. I'm the author of all your pain. Exactly. It's exactly like fucking Spectre. Like, I'm not even being sarcastic. (laughs) And then Watson gets called to go do something else, and he comes back to find the Holmes has died off screen in a note he left that Moriarty considerately gave him time to write before they tackled each other over a fucking waterfall. So yeah, the final problem sucks. At me. But here's the thing. Doyle may have been fucking sick of the character, but the general public was still hashtag horny for Holmes, and so after holding out for so long, Doyle caved and wrote The Hound of the Baskervilles, adamant that Sherlock was definitely still super for reals he's dead, and that this story took place prior to Britain's favorite detective meeting a watery grave. Why is it not Bakersville's? What? Why? What do you mean? B-A-K-E-R. Yeah, what do you mean why is it not? Because it's Baskerville. There's not an S. Yes, there is. Hmm. Oh my god. Really? It's not the hound of the Bakersville. <laughs> you, you didn't even try. Mm. Mm. Carry on. So unfortunately for Doyle, people love the book so much, and it sold so incredibly well, that its success was directly responsible for Doyle resurrecting the character and proceeding to write a bunch more home stories that steadily decreased in quality because Doyle was once more trapped in a hell of his own making. And on the subject of both Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and self-imposed hells, RJ, I'll turn it over to you. Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle was born May 22, 1859, and died July 7, 1930. I'm going to break down Sir Artie Iggy Connie Doyle a bit differently than usual. Jesus Christ. As Maggie claims, we shall return to him in the future. Yes. As such, I'll focus on things specific to the man in this novel. The Hound of, I'm told, Baskerville. You wrote Bakersville every time, didn't you? <laughs> I did. Oh my it's god. Right there. Holy shit. Since Sir Artie Iggy Connie Doyle was colloquially referred to as Conan Doyle in his lifetime, I shall refer to him as Sir CD. Very 90s and rad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sir CD. I guess. That I like Sir Mix a lot. Does he like big butts and he cannot lie? Oh no, he's Sir CD. He likes him thin. Ah. Like a CD. Gotcha. Yeah. Anyway. 
Star CD is celebrated for his part in revitalizing Robert Downey Jr.'s career by writing a character <laughs> named Sherlock Holmes into existence. But we will dive into all things Holmes and the unfortunate looking man he originally was another time in a future episode. He was an ugly, ugly man. Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. Yeah, he was never supposed to be a good-looking dude. He, he was always just sort of pointy and weird. And also, he did a lot of drugs all the time. So he was just very gaunt, and they would talk about how he forgot to eat a lot because he was so busy doing cocaine and solving mysteries. So, like, he was... There was no point was it ever like, he's a looker. <laughs> so if you accompany this episode with that future Holmes episode together, it'll be like traveling through time if you listen to this clip. And then that show in the future. Ooh, at this point, there's nothing spookier than the future. As for Sir C.D., he was born in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1859 to Charles Altamont Doyle and Mary Foley. The family was Irish Catholic. The Doyles had married four years prior. Mama Doyle was a housemaker who raised the children and Daddy Doyle was a drunk. (laughs) A.K.A. Triple D. Drunk Daddy Doyle. I see. Tires, drive-ins, and drunk dads. His drunkenness led to him and Mama Doyle separating a few years after Sir C.D.'s birth, only to reunite about a decade later. His drunkenness and associated mental illnesses led to many problems for the family, which manifested itself in the family being poor and living in squalid conditions for most of Sir C.D.'s childhood. Despite his immediate family's financial shortcomings, Sir C.D. did receive an education at a Jesuit preparatory school due to rich uncles uh, wanting to do the right thing by the lad. That's nice, at least. And this brings us to this week's Financing with RJ, Paying for School Edition, brought to you by (laughs) Student Loans. Poor? Want an education to escape being poor now? Well, how about you take out some student loans, mortgage your future, and be poor now and poor in the future? Student loans, what can't they do for you? (laughs) You're getting too real. (laughs) So, maybe you all have noticed, education is kind of expensive, eh? Much like Sir CD over here. If you want to get a good, prim, and proper education in 2019... You need a rich uncle. (laughs) ...that comes complete with a piece of paper that certifies your education, you gotta pay some big old dollar bills with a Z. This sucks for most people, but alas, I have a solution for you. Actually, wait, but alas, I have a solution for you? Yeah. I don't think you know what alas means. Yeah, look over here. But yonder, <laughs> gaze upon my works. Gaze upon my podcast, ye mighty and despair. <laughs> I have a solution for you. In fact, I have several solutions for you. First, student loans, the sponsor of this segment. But I understand that student loans might not be the silver Van Helsing bullet for everyone. So do what old Sir CD did. Find some rich relatives to pay for education for you. And if you don't have any that you're actually related to, head on down to the local Century Village or the old folks' home of your choice and convince them that you are their long-lost grandchild. If they're living in an old folks' home or a Century Village, they probably don't have that much money to give you. Whatever they have, convince them you're their long-lost grandchild of yesteryear and that you really need their help. If you mention you're some kind of prince or princess, it might even work better. Gam gam, I am a Nigerian prince. Please forward me several million dollars. And if you don't do that, well, I mean, you could always try the other way. What? Vote people into the political seat of your choice that will help you afford college. Politicians hate this one neat trick, but you (laughs) might love it. Almost as much as I love ramen noodles, the food that gives caloric power to college-age students and people who have as much money as college-age students from around the world. Ding! That's the sound of ramen being done in your microwave. This episode is not sponsored by ramen? Ding! It's dinner time. (laughs) It's definitely sponsored by direct political action. And that's all we have for this week's Financing with RJ. Remember, friends, a dollar a day keeps RJ... Very happy. <laughs> a dollar a day gives RJ a dollar. Bye! Sir C.D. complained in his letters that the school was run on medieval principles. He only learned about rudiments, rhetoric, Euclidean geometry, algebra, and the classics. Not like that non-Euclidean geometry mm. that H.P. Lovecraft was always going on about. Sir C.D. found the teachers and headmaster to lack compassion and warmth. And instead, all they favored were the threats of corporal punishment and ritual humiliation 
to deal with any issue that popped up. And when has that ever been a, a problem? He also complained that any assignment he found pointless and complained about, quote, however stupid in itself was to be worthwhile because it forms a sort of mental dumbbell by which one can improve one's mind. So hard work for hard work's sake. Busy work. Busy work. When he was 16, he was sent to a different Jesuit school, this one in Austria, which was more the same. When he finally turned 18, he left the Jesuit school, dropped religion, initially became agnostic, and then later become a spiritual mystic. More on that in a bit. In short, Dew decided to rebel hard. He rebelled so hard that he enrolled at the University of Edinburgh Medical School to study to become a physician. Parents hate their kids taking up this one profession. Doctor! You show him, Sir CD. He actually did become the equivalent of a modern-day MD or DO, so we really could rightfully call him Dr. Sir CD. During his med school years, he took up botany and writing short stories. The first work of fiction he published during this time period was titled The Mystery of Sasassa Valley. Sasassa? Sasassa Valley. Yeah, I guess that's what that says. You want to take any guesses on what that bad boy is about? A mystery in Sasassa Valley? Where do you think that is? Uh, uh, England? No. He hadn't branched out that far yet. It was published in 1879, anonymously, when Sir C.D. was 20. The story's about, shocking here, Africa. Ah. Specifically about a wild demon in Africa. Mm. Yeah, a white British man afraid of Africa and writing fiction about said fear. Why? I never... What a novel concept. But maybe that's why he published it anonymously. Uh, yeah. Even at 20, he was like, eh. Conversely, when he published his first medical article that same year, he made sure his name was on it. Specifically, that article was titled, Gelsemium as a Poison. Yeah. 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 Okay. Gelsemium as a Poison. Okay. All about using a flower to poison people. How did he learn it was poisonous? He ate it. Yeah, he used it on himself, of course. That's how you do science back in the day. He poisoned himself bit by bit until he couldn't take it anymore. Sir CDs described that he had persistent diarrhea, severe frontal headache, and Great Depression. Clearly he came from the Dr. Jekyll School of Medicine. Yeah, it sounds like a good reason to stop that little experiment. You know, before, like, he died. Sir C.D. began to sail the high seas on several boats as their onboard doctor and or surgeon. He decided to set up shop in England as a doctor, but he could never get a steady stream of patients, so he took up writing in his free time. So he didn't make enough money as a doctor, so he turned to writing as a more lucrative career. Yes. What a world. One thing he wrote about? Mandatory vaccinations. Good. You don't know which way he came down. Oh. Nah, he uh, basically kept writing about how the 19th century version of anti-vaxxers were dumb. There is no telling what he would think of the debate raging in this country over the issue. Oh wait, yes there is. He'd still think anti-vaxxers are dumb. Over a hundred years later, still having this argument. So writing was not paying the bills, and he couldn't get patience as a medical doctor, so he decided to do the next logical thing. He became a specialist. Specifically, he went off and studied ophthalmology. Unlucky for him, this followed a similar pattern. He became an ophthalmologist, opened a shop, and according to his autobiography, he received zero patients. Why is he so bad at things? You know what would have been better than zero patients? One. Any patients. <laughs> Sir D turned to writing almost full-time at this point, but now he couldn't find a publisher. When he was 27 in 1887, he wrote his first story starring Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, titled... A Study in Scarlet. It took him nearly two years to find someone to buy it off of him, and for all his troubles, he was paid £25 for full rights to the story. What does that translate to in today money, did you... Well, because I don't know, maybe that... I I don't know what that is. Really? Really? Okay, let's see. I can't imagine very much, I mean, yeah, it's probably not much, but still, like, let's let's get a a better picture of this. About three grand. Alright, yeah, that's rough. So he was paid... The modern day version of three grand for two years of work. Woof. And that was for full rights to the story. See, Serge CD originally pushed for royalties, but no dice. He did write the story in three weeks, so that's pretty impressive, even if he wasn't the best businessman or negotiator. While the first home story did not bring Sir CD riches, it did bring him notoriety, and his literary career finally began taking off. He got paid an exposure. There you go. 
while we will discuss the Sherlock Holmes character on a future episode, I did want to add a few more things about Doyle. He was an avid sportsman known for being a keen cricketer, according to biographers. He was also an accomplished boxer. In fact, he was invited to referee a title fight in Las Vegas in 1909, but he wrote back, quote, I was much more inclined to accept, though my friends pictured me as winding up with a, a revolver at one ear and a razor at the other. However, the distance and my engagements presented a final bar. Too busy to ref a title fight. Yeah, his life is more interesting than mine. <laughs> he also golfed and partook in the 1913 English Billiards Championship. Okay, so he was good at sports. That's the that's the thing. Bad at doctoring, yeah. good at sports. He was good with his hands and balls, it seemed. Nice. Speaking of his hands and balls. Nice. Five kids sprouted from the seeds that were held deep within his balls. <laughs> he planted those seeds in two wives. The first was Louisa Tui Hawkins, and the second wife was Jean Elizabeth Lecky. Oh, it's too bad the second wife wasn't named Tui. That would have worked real well. Oh, well. He actually met the second wife while his first wife was dying of tuberculosis, and... <sighs> He That's kept, right. He, I forgot about this. Yeah, just like Dr. Soyce. He kept their relationship platonic until his first wife died. He says out of respect to her dying and everything, you know? God, yeah, no, this was a thing that I totally knew and forgot about. That while his first wife was fucking dying of tuberculosis, he was just like, mm, I'm gonna fuck this other lady. No, no, he waited until she was dead and in the ground. <laughs> he claims he waited till she was dead and in the ground. We have no proof to back that up. And still, like, he was off gallivanting while his wife was dying and he he says this whole thing of like well it was her wishes she didn't want me to be alone it's wishes like, it's like yeah sure arthur sure arthur ignatius odd bit of trivia none of his five kids had any kids of their own so he never became a grandfather huh yeah you'd think out of five kids you'd hit one yeah none zero interesting this brings us to the mysticism Oh, boy. He became a Freemason when he was 18, and during all of that downtime of being a patientless doctor and ophthalmologist, he began to read about all things occult. He attended over 20 seances, he began to conduct his own psychic investigations, in short, he proved the old axiom, idle hands truly are the devil's playthings. When World War I began and lots of people Sir C.D. knew began to die, he leaned hard into spiritualism. He took a real hard turn into it when his son, Kingsley, died due to wounds from the war. Sir C.D. was convinced the dead, especially those who were young and died in such a sudden, horrific manner, still were able to communicate with the living. Now, where he might say, you know, Occam's razor, just a dad dealing with grief, Sir C.D. had no self-realization to that conclusion. He came to believe that manifestations of mental illnesses were just demonic possessions. So on the one hand, you got a guy being like, I am a doctor, vaccinate your fucking kids. And then on the other hand, oh, are you feeling depressed and anxious? It's because the devil's inside mm -hmm. you. Another big spiritualist at the time was one Harry Houdini, famed magician and guy who was really into bondage. It's true. <laughs> CBT? Maybe that too. I mean, he might have liked, like, locking his balls uh, up in a chain and then being like, watch how quickly I can free him. Anyway, Houdini got involved in spiritualism when he lost his mother. Now, for Houdini's part, he thought a lot of these so-called spiritualist mediums were full of shit. But no matter what he said to his newfound pal, he couldn't convince Sir C.D. of that conclusion. Houdini would show Doyle how the mediums did their tricks. And Doyle only became convinced that Houdini himself was touched by an angel. <laughs> A magical, <laughs> spiritualist angel, and was simply denying his own skills. This is a man who wrote... Like, the story we are about to read is about a detective and uh, disproving the supernatural through cold reason and logic. And this fucking guy... It just... There's a lot of really interesting contradictions in this man's life. I do know that Harry Houdini frequently just wanted to fucking strangle him. Uh, yeah, I think it would have been great to watch like the Penn and Teller show with <laughs> with uh, Sir CD because he'd always be amazed, right? Like here you have Penn and Teller telling it, like telling us and showing us here's how the trick's done. He'd be like, "Holy shit! Look at these guys. They are really magical." That one can't even talk. <laughs> so this went on for a while. Eventually, Houdini had had to end their friendship because Doyle was adamant that Houdini was really a real magician with real magical powers, even though Houdini would explain that no, in fact, none of this is real. 
Houdini couldn't convince Doyle at all that this was a crock of shit. No matter how many times he showed Doyle, things were done. Exactly. No one was able to convince Doyle of it otherwise, so Doyle lived on, believing in all of it. I swear, man, I'm palming the coin. I'm not really taking it out of your ear. You gotta believe me. So, at the age of 71, Sir C.D. was found clutching his chest on the floor in his house on July 7th, 1930. While some say it was a heart attack given the evidence, I think constipation. Much like Elvis and the Duke John Wayne. Oh, no, we're not going back down this road. It sounds like he was full of shit to me. (laughs) Or maybe it was a heart attack. I'm not a fucking doctor, okay? He was, and he had no patience. Maybe it was demons. Maybe. Turning to the novel itself, The Hound of Baskerville was published in a serialized fashion, a method we have discussed in prior episodes of Ono Look Class, but in short, basically the print version of traditional TV show seasons, just in print, in 1901 to 1902. As we will discuss in a future episode, this likely was Sir C.D. giving in to fan pressure to bring the ugly detective man back because Sir C.D. hated his own creation. Yep. The self-loathing is strong in this one. Hey, but he he knew which side of the, the bread his... Wait, wait, fuck. He knew where his bread was buttered? How's it saying? He knew what... He knew, he knew what, what buttered his, his bread. <laughs> he knew what side of the bread that butter was on. <laughs> You know, I'm told when a piece of butter bread falls, it always lands butter side up. Your no, thoughts? Butter side down. It's no, Meg, you got it wrong. Cats land on their back. Always. Dude, which side of Sherlock Holmes was butter side down? And Megan always lands on Megan's head. <laughs> yeah, laugh on the truth, Meg. This novel was rated number one overall by Sherlockian scholars, who gave the novel a perfect rating of 100, which is equivalent to seven thumbs up on the Simpsons scale. Got it in, guys! Yeah, got that (laughs) Simpsons reference, baby! You know what? Something always new. (laughs) It naturally finds a way in. You've definitely made the seven thumbs up joke before. Oh, here it is again. (laughs) I don't remember. The general reading public was a bit more discerning, however, when the BBC conducted its poll of the best-loved novel for its The Big Read series in the UK. The novel finished 128th out of 200. Specifically, it finished behind Louise Renanson's Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging, which sounds like a delightful romp about teenagers coming of age and enjoying the finer points of meat, cheeks, and meat meeting cheeks. It's a YA book. It's cute. I read it when I was a teenager. For now, I turn things over to Megan to tell us about the novel that isn't a teen coming-of-age story, sadly. It could be, but it, no, it's not. kind of wish it was. Good evening. Or whatever time it is that you happen to be listening. For me right now, it's evening. It's also Megan, and I waited until the last minute to do this, because nothing is spookier than procrastination. But you know what I am not going to procrastinate on? Saying thank you to our wonderful, beautiful, hocus-pocus patrons who help make Ono Lit Class possible, including Deborah, Casey, Morini B, and Allie, who brought us up to the very on-brand number of 69 patrons. Nice. And now we'll probably never get another one ever again because people are going to be like, well, I don't want to be patron number 70. That's no fun. But it's still, please, please be patron number 70. Look, all of you are patron number 69 in our hearts. You know what? That sounded a lot more sweet and meaningful in my head. Um, I might have to walk that one back later. Uh, let's let's get back to the episode now. That that seems like a good idea. So the Hound, as it is Baskerville, 
Our story narrated as ever by Dr. John Watson, our dependable audience surrogate, through which we can properly appreciate just how smart and cool Sherlock Holmes is and how much Watson admires him and definitely wants to hold him in the strong yet tender embrace that only two people who've shared death-defying adventures and played such a major role in each other's lives ever could. Arms encircled so lovingly. Just like thongs. What? No. Th- thongs no. hold two <laughs> brothers or sisters and arms right next to each other, touching, <laughs> caressing. That's that, that's Holmes and Watson, just a pair a pair of cheeks. <laughs> yeah, bouncing into the future yep. gloriously, gloriously, side by side, always there. But there's always that thin separation. Just, yep, just keeping them apart, just barely separating them. Right. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> <laughs> Holmes and Watson at home hanging out. Examining a walking stick left behind by someone who came by to try to get an appointment with Holmes while the two were busy doing something else that was probably not hot, hot sex. They look at the walking stick and are like, that sure is a stick, all right. And Holmes does this thing that he does in most stories where he plays this stupid game with Watson where he's like, well, what do your powers of deduction tell you about it? Meanwhile, Holmes already knows all the right answers, doesn't actually give a shit about Watson's input, and is just like eagerly waiting for the chance to be like, nope, you're actually wrong and dumb, lol. Lupus. <laughs> well, House is based on Sherlock. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it- this, this is a thing. Okay, okay, it's Stop it. It's whoopus. In this case, Watson observes that it's a very fancy stick with a silver band on it with the inscription to James Mortimer MRCS from his friends of the CCH. And he's like, okay, uh, I think he's an older, successful country doctor, MRCS being member of the Royal College of Surgeons, because clearly this stick has seen a lot of use and it's kind of banged up. So he's walking around the countryside a You're lot. You're telling me. <laughs> Sticks seen a lot of use, but it was expensive, and I guess the CCH is maybe like a local hunting club. Like the H stands for hunt, and they gifted it to him because like one of them was a patient of his. And the whole time he's explaining his thought process, Holmes is like, "Ah, yes, good deduction, makes sense, perfectly reasonable." And Watson's basically wagging his tail. Like a frequent Watson narrative trait is that he is absolutely a hundred percent hard on the sleeve with the reader. He is never playing it cool about how badly he wants Holmes to think that he is smart and great and how excited he gets when Holmes deems him worthy of a compliment, which, like, forget even romantic, is definitely a wildly unhealthy work relationship for two adults to have. Especially when, after paying these BS compliments, Holmes gets to try out his fucking, oh, Watson, you sweet, gorgeous idiot. Everything you said is completely wrong, and like cute things an adorably stupid child would say. My deductions are like beautiful calligraphy, and yours are like scrawled crayon by someone with three working fingers. And Watson puts up with this every time, and then is wowed by Holmes showing off his superior deduction skills. Because he enjoys being negged, I guess. Who doesn't? Because <laughs> this is this what this is, and this is like every story. Holmes just fucking constantly negs Watson, and the man eats it up with a spoon. So people like being negged. Look, obviously, I don't want to kink shame Holmes and Watson, but I will if I have to. Look, mate, there's a whole dating book based on this principle. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how well that works out for people. Does it not? Now, while you might not agree with it, <laughs> I'm not going to question its efficacy. No, people will be getting mean, away out there, mate. Being mean to people is not a good like through line to getting into a relationship with them i'm not saying it's moral i'm not saying it's right i've seen a lot of questionable things lead to questionable outcomes what the fuck does that even mean anyway holmes explains that well actually yes this james mortimer is a doctor but he's actually very young and he did his residency at charing cross hospital hence the cch and also the stick is fucked up because he has a small dog that chews on it And then, presumably because he was waiting by the door for his chance at a dramatic entrance, Mr. James Mortimer himself throws open the door and is in fact a fairly young man with a smallish dog and just recently opened a practice in the country, and he needs Holmes to solve a dark and terrible mystery about the tragic death of his friend, Sir Charles Baskerville. Uh, Dun-dun-dun! Not Bakersville. No, not or Bastardville. And then, Mr. Mortimer gives Holmes a book. Oh, boy. A really old book. The Kama Sutra. No. Moby Dick. Nope. And he goes, I could just explain what's going on to you, or 
I can make you read all this backstory. And he does. Born. Which means we have to. Born. Because if there's anything I've learned from Dracula, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Frankenstein, and basically everything from H.P. Lovecraft, nothing is spookier than stopping the story to read a bunch of papers. I can hear him rustling. Ooh. Flashback. So. 1984. What? 1983. <laughs> Whenever this took place. Not 1983. 1982. Yep, boom, boom, it was 1982. Boom, boom, boom. Do, 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 do. This is 80s music, I guess. 99. So. Oh, that's going to be the background song. Okay, so I'm going to speed run this uh, ghost story that Mr. Mortimer has handed our heroes. <laughs> a couple hundred years ago, there was a dude named Hugo Baskerville, which is a name that fucking rules, right? Hugo Baskerville? Hugo's okay. I don't like this Baskerville stuff. Eh, you're wrong. Uh, unfortunately, he was a mega dick. Just an all-around jackass who spent his time getting loaded and picking fights with people. One day... He throws a rager in his mansion and locks a pretty girl in a room to presumably do gross and terrible things to her later, but she climbs out the window and escapes. And Because you know someone named Hugo Baskerville is going to be all about the drama. It's not enough for him to be like, I'm going to go chase that girl back down because I'm awful. I don't know. He proclaims that he will sell his soul for a way to catch her, which is just wildly unnecessary. Get on a horse or something, or just find a different girl who's actually into you that you don't have to lock in a room. But where would be the fun in that? Instead, he rounds up a pack of hounds and goes to hunt her down, and everyone else at the party follows him, we're told, because they've picked up on the realization that bad things are afoot, but I think it's more that they just, you know, they want to see how this plays out. The gang of drunk rubberneckers show up on the scene to see the girl, dead on the ground from fear and exhaustion, and Hugo, about to be dead, as he gets his throat torn out by a giant ghost dog. Ruff, 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 ruff. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Zigadoon used bite. Although really- Zigzadoon, zigzag, wait, Zigzagoon? Zig- Although, I mean, there's the hound one, I just don't remember his name, the fire dog. Yeah. So you're, so you're, just, you're just naming things. What was- Houndfur. No. Houndoom? No, there's no way. Houndoom. I think that's one of the evolved forms. Houndor. Yeah, what does Houndor evolve into? Houndoom. Told you so. Little and the terrier. little, oh, that's so cute, the little terrier Pokemon. Her, he's hurtier. It's dumb. Or, you know what? What are we doing here? What? Oh, Growlithe? Yeah. Yeah. Growlithe used bite. No, but it's really Houndoom. Yeah. So Mr. Mortimer kind of looks at Holmes like, well, what do you think about that? I think it's a Houndoon. It's a very nice Pokemon. <laughs> Holmes is just like, all right, you made me read a really old ghost story, I guess. Is, is there something you wanted? And in response, Mr. Mortimer pulls out another piece of paper we have to read. Neg this. <laughs> this one, a newspaper article regarding the aforementioned and much more recent death of Sir Charles Baskerville. It says he was a chill guy, if a little wacky and eccentric, and that he was a widower who donated a lot of his wealth and lived out on the moors. He was found lying dead in his driveway, presumably of natural causes, although apparently his face was so distorted in grotesque horror that his friend Mr. Mortimer couldn't even positively identify him at first. I mean, dying of a heart attack might make you make a a pretty terrible face, I would imagine, but Holmes is like, hmm, intriguing, and Mortimer is like, yes, those are the public facts, if you know what I mean. And Holmes is like, ah, okay then, so what's the hot goss? Dish them dirty details, bitch. Meanwhile, Watson is standing around and not saying anything, like the dutiful sexy lamp that he is. Mortimer adds that he left out of his official doctor report that Sir Charles' heart problems were getting worse because there was something he wouldn't talk about, something that had him terrified beyond all reason. Both Mortimer and another mutual friend, a guy named Mr. Stapleton, agreed that maybe Sir Charles needed to take some time away from the moors, because as we learned in Wuthering Heights, it's just not healthy to be fucking around alone on the moors for too long. Gets you all weird and dramatic and also often dead. How about on the moops? The moops? Yes, going out on the moops. Wow, you like that one, huh? We have made that joke before. I don't think so. Yes, we have, because I remember saying, who the fuck is going to get this Seinfeld joke that's for three people? <laughs> Did you know he dated a high schooler? Jerry Seinfeld? Yeah. Yes, it's really creepy and gross. 
Uh, in this case, Sir Charles died before he could even leave. But when Mortimer found the body, he also found footprints nearby. What kind of footprints, you may ask? Hound dude. Yeah, basically. Those of a giant dog. Oh, beanies. Oh, little giant footy beanies. That burned with every step. You, you want to ooh with me? Ooh. Dogs aren't scary. Well, this, well this, this is a demon murder dog. You just need a wet Pokemon. <laughs> Except Sherlock Holmes does not believe in evil prophetic ghost dogs. It's like, are, are you sure these weren't prints from like a, a sheep dog or something? Or some big ass moor dog got on those weird British swamps or whatever? And Mortimer insists there's no local dogs running around, wild owned or otherwise. Holmes asks Mortimer a billion questions about the crime scene. Is just like, so much time has passed. Why didn't you call me sooner? And Mortimer's like, well, I mean... You're a detective. What can a detective do against demons and shit? And Holmes is like, excuse? Demons? Who you gonna call? <laughs> dun, 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 Sherlock dun, Holmes! <laughs> and Mortimer's like, yeah, demons, as in the giant glow-in-the-dark demon dog people have seen running around the moors. Did I not mention that when you asked about seeing a dog around? <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying Damon. <laughs> Whoops, my bad. Like Damon Wayne. Damon Wayne. We know how to deal with that guy. He's out on the moors. And Holmes is like, okay... Then again, why are you even here? I've got cocaine I could be doing right now. Cocaine. Cocaine. And Mr. Mortimer, who is just absolute shit at getting to the fucking point, finally gets to the fucking point and says he wants Holmes' help with Henry Baskerville, the last of the Baskerville line and new heir to the estate, who's going to be coming from Canada to inherit it and has no idea that his family is apparently cursed to get mangled to death by devil dogs. And Mortimer just straight up says to Holmes, like, so what do you think I should do with him? Should I tell him? Should I keep him from going to the manor? Like, what, what are your thoughts? Neg him. Neg him. Always neg him. And this is a really weird problem to go to a fucking detective for, right? He doesn't want him to solve a mystery or a murder or, or anything. He just wants him to make a decision for him. You see, back in the day, before 2019, when we all became specialists, we used to be generalists, you know? And people really respected that in someone. That you're jack of all trades. People aren't that anymore. So, jack of all trades. But he's specifically a detective. Of feelings. <laughs> Definitely not of feelings. Otherwise, he'd be way better at them. Oh, that's how good he is at them. <laughs> he doesn't need them himself. Ah. Either way, it turns out to be the right call because Holmes is like, demons are fake and bullshit and I'm going to prove it with my big awesome brain. And then they look at a map of the manor grounds and determine that Sir Charles died running full out away from his house. And also possibly an evil murder demon dog, but I guess we'll see. The next day, Mortimer shows up with Henry in tow, having freshly arrived in London. Henry is a young man who actually has heard the murder demon dog stories as a kid, but doesn't care, because he's not going to let a little thing like a centuries-old curse keep him from getting that money, son! He does tell Holmes, though, that when he woke up this morning, someone left him a note that said words clipped out of a newspaper ransom note style, As you value your life or your reason, keep away from the moor. And Holmes looks at the note and is like, This was made by someone educated, trying to appear like a working man who was in a great hurry. Hmm. And Henry's like, holy shit, you can tell that? I also lost one of my shoes this morning. Do you think it's connected? Do you know where it is? What can you deduce about that? And Holmes is like, how the hell should I know where your shoe is? I'm a detective, not a fucking lost and found. Henry leaves their house, and Holmes grabs Watson by the balls, one would assume. Of course. And they follow Henry and realize they're not the only ones doing so. Some mysterious bearded dude is also following Henry around, but he spots Holmes and Watson and fucks off. Holmes then pays a street kid to dig through the trash of all the big local hotels to see if he could find a newspaper with some words cut out of it at any of them. And then he and Watson go to an art gallery together. Really? That's not a joke. He pawns the actual detective work off on a child so he and his bestie can go stroll around arm in arm and look at art. Hey, (laughs) look at that thing. It looks so good. Look at you. We should, we, should, yeah, we should put that one up in our study, yes. Oh, look how ugly that one is. Yeah. Ew. 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 They meet back up at Henry's hotel room, where he's having a hissy fit because he went out and bought new shoes to replace the missing one, except now someone took one of those, and now he's got a pair of mismatched shoes like some kind of dipshit, and because this feels like a totally stupid and superfluous event, you just know it's gonna end up somehow being a thing later. Especially when they find one of the other shoes later on while they're still in the room talking about who might have been following Henry, so keep those boots in the back of your mind, I guess. Holmes also had no luck with the hired street urchin finding any newspaper evidence. 
He says that something clearly is afoot, and that Henry should not go to Baskerville Hall unaccompanied, but also that Holmes can't go. Because he's got stuff to do. Probably not detective stuff. Maybe more art galleries. But Watson can go! And, and Watson's just like, I can what now? But he soon surrenders to the fact that he has absolutely no agency in this relationship, and better pack his bags for the fucking moors because Sherlock Holmes said so. Oh, and also, he gives Watson the task of spying on a whole list of people while he's there, and reporting back to Holmes via telegram. Remind me again who the fucking detective is? Me. Yeah. I'm the detective now. I'm the one who detects. Yes. And I'm detecting bullshit <laughs> and houndoons. I guess He's... Pikachu's the detective. Yeah, that's true. You know what? I think Detective Pikachu would do a better job. Pikachu! That's not what Ryan Reynolds sounds like at all. Pikachu! Yep, that's it. So, anyway, these people that uh, he needs to keep an eye on are Mr. and Mrs. Barrymore, which is the butler and his wife. Mr. Mortimer, which seems like kind of a dick move, but I guess you can't rule anyone out. Mrs. Mortimer, his wife, who's really not ever mentioned again. Mr. Stapleton, that one guy who was also Sir Charles's friend. Mr. Stapleton's hot sister, Beryl. And Mr. Franklin, some other dude who's also there. Mortimer, Henry, and Watson all take the train to Baskerville Hall. And when they get there, they're greeted with the news that there's an escaped murderer named Selden out running loose on the moors. And also the Barrymores don't want to stay on at the manor because it's creepy that their boss died there. And also there's a murderer on the loose. And in the middle of the night, Watson hears mysterious sounds of a woman crying. And so he's just like, woo, yay, vacation. Fuck you, Sherlock. No, I could could never stay mad at you, you handsome, sexy jackass. The next day, he meets Stapleton, who's running around with a butterfly net because he's a naturalist. Whatever that means. He doesn't wipe. (laughs) Gross. And he free bleeds. (laughs) Basically, any kind of sanitary napkins, not his thing. Nope. And he's like, hey, so Holmes uh, sent you out here to see if Sir Charles was actually murdered or if this hound stuff's the real deal? And Watson's just like, how the fuck do you know me? But Stapleton uh, assures him, like, it's just, you know, Watson's arrival is the new hot gossip in their very, very small, sad English swamp town. And everybody knows he's Sherlock Holmes' little lapdog. And everyone knows who Sherlock Holmes is because, because they do. Just go with it. Then this strange man with a butterfly net, who somehow immediately knew Watson on site, is like, hey, come over to my house. And John Watson, medical doctor, military man, veteran of many a high-stakes mystery adventure, goes, yeah, sure, that sounds good. On the way, Stapleton offhandedly comments that exploring the moors alone is super dangerous because you're likely to fall into a bog and die. Or run into Heathcliff. And honestly, I'm not sure which is worse. But then Staple sees a cool butterfly, maybe a butterfree, and immediately runs off alone into the moors. So Watson, now alone, is suddenly approached by a woman who he assumes is Staples' sister because only five people live in this stupid bog town. And the first words out of her mouth to him are, go straight back to London instantly, which definitely isn't ominous. But then her brother comes back, confirms that that's his sister, Beryl, and she's immediately like, oh man, look at these lovely bog flowers, like nothing weird has happened. Then there's some confusion where Beryl thought that Watson was Henry, but even after clearing that up, she doesn't explain the creepy warning. And then the chapter ends. And then we get to that can't-miss trope of classic old-timey horror fiction. Any guesses what it is, RJ? Mm, It was a ghost all along. No, no, not, not a twist. A classic staple of these old literature horror things. A red swinger stapler. Extended correspondence and diary entries. Ooh, we're getting to the fun part. (laughs) Yeah. Epistolatory. Three chapters worth of them. Thrill, as Watson writes to Holmes about Barrymore the butler being weird and staring at windows while his wife cries a lot. Shiver as he notes that Henry and Beryl seem to be super into each other, but Big Brother Staples does not approve for some reason. And tremble in terror as Mr. Franklin is also there. Barrymore continues being weird and wandering around at night with a lantern, while Henry and Beryl continue being mad horny for each other until Staples catches them out on a swamp date and flips out. Watson, secretly observing them, like a creep, is like, whoa, what's the problem here? And Staples later admits that he's just a lonely man who doesn't want to lose his only companion. 
which is his sister, is, is probably nothing. And then, finally, a thing happens. Nine fucking chapters into this 15-chapter book. Henry decides that he can put lusting after Beryl on hold so he and Watson can follow Barrymore around on his midnight wanderings. They catch him signaling someone out on the moors with a candle who's signaling back, and Henry is rightfully like, what the fuck, dude? But Barrymore protests that he has no intentions of harming Henry, and Mrs. Barrymore bursts in to defend her husband and says he's just trying to help her brother Selden, the escaped crazed murderer. Yeah, that's, uh, that's Mrs. Barrymore's brother. And even though he's, you know, killed people and stuff, she can't just leave him out there, right? No. Can't do that. That'd be wrong. Evil. And Watson and Henry are like, no, you're wrong. We're, we're not doing this. We're going to call the police. Except, no, they don't do that, because that would be a smart person thing. Instead, they get guns and go out to try to capture Selden themselves. They search the moors and hear the terrifying howl of what could only be a ghostly hell dog. And then they chase after Selden, but lose him in the mist and darkness. Was that good for you? Was that nice and spooky? I hope so, because it's back to a whole lot of nothing. As we read an entry from Watson's diary about how Barrymore is upset that Watson and Henry tried to capture a literal, actual, escaped murderer instead of letting the Barrymores help him get to South Africa. And the two other men are like, yeah, all right, fine, which was pretty easy. In return, Barrymore tells them that he's been hiding the fact that Sir Charles may have been having a scandalous liaison with a woman in town. Which, holy shit, there's more than one woman around here? <laughs> you would have thought we would have sniffed her out. I know. Sure, her name is Laurel Lyons, the disowned daughter of Mr. Franklin. You know, that one guy. The one who's not Staples, or Mortimer, or the butler, or Watson. <laughs> Barrymore also says that he noticed while he's leaving food out for his murderous brother-in-law, like he's a fucking stray cat, that there's a second man hiding out on the moors. And that he's been- There's a second man? Up in the rafters? (laughs) No, in the moors. Oh, the moops. The moops. And he's been spotted near some old ruins. Who could this new mystery man be? George Costanza. No, but that would be so good. Jerry. Jerry, I'm out in the moors. The moops. Uh, Jerry, I'm in the moops. I'm out in the swamp. There's a murderer out here. There's a bubble boy. It's this. You Really? You got one episode of Seinfeld that you know how to reference, huh? Georgie. Georgie, you got to get out of Baskerville Hall. There's a ghost dog. I dated a teenager. I can't do do the, the riff. You're so bad at Seinfeld. <laughs> well, either way. You'll, 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 hot no. Well, you'll just have to wait. Because, oh, was it the summer of George? Because, well, we, we don't know. It's Gore-Tex, Jerry. <laughs> you have to wait, because first Watson has to track down this Laurel Lyons lady and confirm that, yes, she was corresponding with Sir Charles, but not in a sexy way. He was giving her money. See, she was disowned by her dad for eloping with an artist, and she's broke. Sir Charles was helping her out, and the letter she sent him was about wanting to meet with him, which would have been very scandalous, but then she never did. And that's the end of that. Then Mr. Franklin appears, but he doesn't want to talk about his daughter. He wants to tell Watson that he's seen that guy out on the moors who a boy's been bringing food to. Watson follows the boy and finds the ruins, and that's where he discovers... Not the ruins? Oh, who's who's at the ruins? George! <laughs> it's George! It's Ash Ketchum, the owner of Houndoom. It's Sherlock Holmes. Oh. The whole time he claimed he was in London, he's actually been living in the swamp, watching everyone, and somehow avoiding being murdered by Selden. So he was like a swamp thing. Yeah, kind of. And Watson, of course, is rightfully pissed off that Holmes has just been lying to him purposefully this whole time. And Holmes is like, Watson, look, I trust you completely, 100%. But also, I know, if you'd known that I was out here, you would have been unable to resist coming out here to see me, you big needy bitch. Also, despite living in ancient ruins out on the moors, Sherlock knows more about the townsfolk than Watson, who's been wandering around with these idiots for what feels like six fucking months. He tells us that Laura Lyons has been having an affair with Stapleton, who is also having an affair because Beryl is not actually his sister, she's his wife. Whoa. And they're pretending so that she can marry Henry and they can steal his fortune. Staples was the one following Harry back in London while Beryl sent the warning note. No word on who was fucking with his shoes, though. 
Holmes is 100% sure Staples is the culprit, but he has no proof, and meanwhile has to protect Henry. Except... Except the mint day. Except that they hear a blood-curdling scream followed by the growling of a dog. They run towards the sound and find They find a dead body with a crushed skull that appears to be Henry. That's a weird noise. Whoops. Except... Except... Except that it's actually not. It's not that at all. It's the murderer, Selden, wearing Henry's clothes that Mrs. Barrymore gave him. R.I.P. Selden, you were a murderer, but I I guess a pretty okay brother, considering the effort Mrs. Barrymore was willing to go through. Holmes gets, um, uncomfortably excited that he didn't fuck up and let Henry die, and he starts dancing, and it's like, okay, like, this guy was a murderer, but there's still a corpse just sitting there, man. Like, maybe bring it down a notch. Never. Don't, Don't be clicking your heels together, you fucking weirdo. Stapleton runs into them like, oh no, I'd invited Henry over to my house and he never showed up. Did he die? And Holmes has to disappoint him and be like, nah, it's just this murderer. JK. That night at Baskerville Hall, Holmes tries to plan out how he's going to prove that Stapleton is behind all this. He also notices an old portrait of Hugo and is like, hey. You used to look good. (laughs) That looks a lot like Staples. Have you lost some weight? No, not Henry, Hugo. Hugo from the, The Curse. Hey, he says he looks a lot like Staples. Do you think he might actually be a Baskerville too? He then lies to everyone and says that he and Watson are going back to London because all Sherlock does is fucking lie to people to manipulate them into doing what he wants because he's so much smarter than them. Uh, he says he and Watson are going back to London and instead they go see Laura Lyons again and they show her that Staples has been using her to get money from Sir Charles and is actually a married man. She says that Staples threatened her to stay quiet about it and hinted that he may have murdered Sir Charles. And now, we finally fucking reach the chapter called The Hound of the Baskervilles, the next-to-last chapter in the book called The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is some Moby Dick shit right there. Oh, we had a build-up. Edging. It is. Edging. So much edging. Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade, a policeman Holmes called down from London, all secretly watch Henry go to Staples' house for dinner. Henry is bait, by the way. And Henry doesn't know he's bait, so, you know, that's nice. It's a dark and foggy night. Nothing strange happens, and Henry goes to leave when suddenly the big black hell dog appears, glowing with fire in the fog, chasing after Henry, ready to tear him to pieces. And Holmes and the gang are like, oh shit, and they chase after the dog, which starts attacking Henry, and then Sherlock pumps that hellish doggo full of lead until it fucking dies. (laughs) Sherlock Holmes, baby. I'm gonna deduce you with my gun. So the Hound of the Bastervilles exists for like 10 seconds. Henry's freaked out, but mostly okay. And as they examine the body of the dog, they realize it was painted with phosphorus to appear like it was glowing and on fire. That kills the dog. Yes, this is not good for dog health. Don't do that. Don't put phosphorus on your dog. Uh, Or on yourself. I was taught that in the Sisters Brothers. I see. Spoilers. Spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen the two-year-old movie. Uh, Okay. Don't see it. It's bad. So this was what scared Selden so bad that he ran off a cliff and died, and also what freaked out Sir Charles so bad that he had a heart attack. They run back to Staples' house, and they find Beryl tied up and gagged. She says that Staples was abusing her, and she never wanted to be part of the plan to kill Henry, and that her husband is out hiding in the moors, because everyone in this book is required to hide out in the moors at least once. They go looking for him, and along the way, they spot one of Henry's missing boots. Aha! Remember those boots? Were there a puss in them? No. This was how Staples was training the dog to go after Henry's scent, and why it attacked Selden since he was wearing Henry's clothes. They don't find Staples, though, and since they don't feel like looking around anymore, they decide he fell into a bog and died. (laughs) They're just like, yep, that's probably what happened. The final chapter is basically a post-mortem, where one month later... After holding it in for 30 days, I guess, Watson is like, hey, so explain everything about what happened back out on the moors and shit. Like, he just waited a month to be like, by the way. And Holmes does. And the short version is that Staples was an obscure offshoot of the Baskerville line and was actually named Roger Baskerville and decided that the easiest way to get at the family fortune wasn't to just come clean and say so, but instead, much like his ancestor Hugo, decided that it was more important to do stuff for the drama. And instead got a huge fucking dog, painted up like a ghost, trained it to go after Sir Charles, and then when Henry showed up, did the same thing. 
He returned that new boot earlier because it didn't have that good Henry scent, by the way. Holmes had tried to use Henry as bait to catch Staples in the act, but then he died of the moor, and so all's well that ends well, I guess. The end. That's the sure as the how the Baskervilles. So going into adaptations, there have been about 10,000 adaptations of Sherlock Holmes material in every medium in existence. So of course there are plenty of adaptations of The Hound of Baskerville. Oh, this is the number one rated Sherlock Holmes story by Sherlock Holmesians. And I don't understand why, but we'll get there. Many of which are German for whatever reason. German, yes. We love the Sherlock Holmes. That's not what... We love this Sherlock Holmes, yes. And by many, I mean 10 of the 33 film and TV adaptations, which... Is that by? Is right? Seems like, seems like not an insignificant amount, but like, I'm not sure what it means. The most recent of these adaptations involve an episode of the TV show Elementary, where Sherlock is a modern-day Johnny Lee Miller, and the BBC TV show Sherlock, where Sherlock is a modern-day Bendy Toot Crample Snatch. Now, wouldn't elementary be better if it was Sherlock Holmes in elementary school? Yes. Or would that be elementary, elementary? I'd watch it. Oh, uh, man, imagine elementary, elementary. So it's like Sherlock Holmes, and it's like a detective school. It's like all the other kids are detectives, too, but he's like the house of detectives. <laughs> and like all the like little kids get frustrated with him in every scene. <laughs> he gets beat up Oh, a this lot. is a good show, Meg. You gotta get me in touch with CBS, America's Ooh. Most Watched Network. Young Sherlock. It airs right after Young Sheldon. <laughs> oh, no, it's called Elementary Elementary. I got the title. I mean, it's nice and catchy. It's exactly what it is. I guess. Oh, it's Sherlock again. Mm. What happened at recess today? So I'm going to hang on to my opinions of both these shows as adaptations overall, because this isn't a straight up Sherlock Holmes episode, but <laughs> Sherlock is a garbage toilet show. Wow. At me. There have also been three radio plays and at least two stage adaptations of the novel, as well as, this will interest you, a 2015 Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney spin-off game for the Nintendo DS where you're a 19th century lawyer who's one of Phoenix Wright's ancestors and you help Sherlock Holmes solve crimes. Objection! One of which is the Hound of the Baskervilles. You, you want to know what I have an objection about? This game never got an American release. That's bullshit. Speaking of Japanese media, the Hound is also a character in the vampire manga series Helsing. No one else from the story, just, just you know, just the evil dog. And lastly, in 2007, a French literature professor and author named Pierre Bayard published a book called Sherlock Holmes Was Wrong, reopening the case of the Hound of Baskervilles, where he tries to re-examine all the clues from the original story, clear the Hound's name, and say that Sherlock, the reader, and possibly even Doyle himself are all not only wrong, but also stupid for not seeing the truth this whole time. Because I guess French literature professors just have that kind of free time. I'm sure as hell not going to read it, so I read a bunch of reviews and the general consensus seems to be that it's about as annoying as it sounds. Like, like get a fucking hobby. Write your own goddamn story. If you're going to write some fanfiction, don't be such a pretentious twat about it. Fanfiction in general is supposed to be fun, and Sherlock Holmes fanfiction in particular is supposed to be about how Holmes and Watson are fucking. And uh, I didn't even talk about the Baskerville effect yet. Did you know there's a thing called the Baskerville effect? How is it related to the butterfly? It's not. Uh, so according to Wikipedia, known source of all things, it's the discredited idea that there is an increase in rate of mortality through heart attacks on days considered unlucky because of the psychological stress this causes on superstitious people, a la Charles Baskerville dying of a heart attack. So people with, like, heart problems are, are so freaked out because they're superstitious and it's, like, Friday the 13th and they're more likely to die of a heart attack or something. However, the study that uh, the effect gets its name from apparently left out important data, couldn't be replicated, and was then deemed bullshit and statistically insignificant. So, yeah. And uh, that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to, which is, hey, RJ. So The Hound of the Baskerville. Not the Bakersville. Not the Bastardville. Good or bad? Three Jerry's. <laughs> Out of? Four Georges. <laughs> That's a very confusing system. But two Kramers. And <laughs> Wait, so... And this is definitely sponge-worthy. <laughs> so three... There we go. I was going to say, three Jerry's and two Kramers. Is that like a full house or a royal flush? <laughs> a handful of sponges. Sponge-worthy. Look, I'm just not... I don't know. I just don't like the Sherlock Holmes character. Because like he's a prick or other reasons? I guess that's part of it. He's just one of those characters that just never spoke to me in any of the things. Like, even the movies that are pretty current. Just 
don't like the character. Fair enough. Also, Sir CD, dude, if you're listening, well, you believe you were listening because I guess you believe we could communicate with you out here in the uh, real world. Just stop. <laughs> Houdini really isn't magic. I hope you see that now. We didn't even talk about the thing with, uh, that there's this whole thing where these girls did this hoax that they had photographic evidence of fairies. It was pictures of them with, with fairies, but the fairies were clearly like fake and made out of cardboard and shit. And Arthur Conan Doyle saw these and were like, holy shit, fairies are real. There's a whole movie about this that I need to watch. I haven't seen it yet, but like he went out to investigate and these were just preteen girls and they fucking pulled one over on him. I hope he's doing better now, <laughs> wherever he is, if he's out there on the moops. <laughs> hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. The Hoondoon of Bakersville. The, the Hoombadoom? The Hoondoon. The Hoombadoom. Of Bakersville. Yeah. How many Pokeballs do you give it? Not that many. Name that Pokemon. <laughs> it's me being kind of disappointed that this book doesn't hold up as well for me as it did when I was 15. So more Machoke than Machamp. Yeah. I'm surprised that Sherlockians give it, like, like this is the best one. It's a Sherlock Holmes story with barely any Sherlock Holmes. It's mostly Watson dicking around. The conclusion comes way too quickly, like it's a fucking lifetime... It, is, it has a lifetime original movie ending! The yeah. dog shows up, they kill it immediately, and in the last five minutes it cuts to a month later with a falling action. Yep. <laughs> And it's it just, there's not nearly enough ghost murder dog. And also, when I was 15, I was way more forgiving. I was like Watson, where I was like, ooh, Sherlock's so smart and so cool. And then as an adult, it's like, he's kind of an ass. So that'll about do it for this episode of Ono Lit Class. If you like that voodoo that we do, spread the word. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Go out onto the moors and scream it out, but don't tell don't, the don't fall Do in a box. Yes, yeah. tell the spirits. Go to a seance. Tell the spirits. I'm not sure if their downloads count towards our overall total, but there's only one way to find out. You can always find us on Facebook, Twitter at Ono Lit Class Pod, and links to our our store and our our PO box stuff and, and our everything, all all the things, all the time at onolitclass.com. The next episode will be on October 31st. <laughs> I don't know what's, what's special about that date. Until next time, I'm still spooky Megan. I'm far-fetched. Say it right then. I'm far-fetched. Yeah, close enough. Yep. We love you. Bye. I'm getting late breaking news here. Oh. For our dinner next week where I go with the uh, people. Oh. We're dressing up as the characters from Clue. Oh my god. <laughs> Have fun with that, Professor Plum. I guess so, but I I mean I got that shirt I'm looking at right there. Yeah. Is that Plum? No. Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I could force it up. Yeah. I'm thinking of uh, <laughs> Colonel Mustard here. Yeah. Yeah. Because I got the khaki stuff. I wear my yellow tie. Oh man, you should get a like, fucking... Uh, no, I'm not yeah. buying anything, okay. but buying's out of the question. Okay. I wore the old Soviet medal. We ain't got other medals. No, we don't. I don't even know why you got that one, you fucking comic. Because my yeah, friend because... bought it back from uh, Russia when she studied abroad there before things that. got all weird. Duh, I got beef or mustard. Well, yeah, everybody's going to want that. You're going to have to be like, I don't even remember who the fucking characters of Clue are. Be Tim Curry. You Mr. Body? Yeah. I guess you'd be Mr. Green? Oh, Someone took Mrs. Green. Be Mr. Peacock then. Be like, fuck Someone you. took that. Who's left? I know, right? There's not... not enough characters. I know. Okay, then wait till everybody's done and be Mr. Body. Then you can literally wear whatever you want and just lie on the ground the whole time like, fuck you. <laughs> 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 yeah, see, it's a good plan. Yeah, it's good.